This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Some Wall Street investors think they've found their next big payoff, and that's water in the West. Its potential, they believe, lies in its scarcity. For now, at least, water in this region is artificially cheap, largely because of government policy. But drought and explosive growth here represent an opportunity for some hedge fund managers. They think a more capitalistic approach could both solve the water crisis and result in a big payday. There are critics, as you might imagine. Farmers are among them and advocates for the poor as well. Abram Lustgarten writes about this for ProPublica. His article, Liquid Assets, also appears in The Atlantic. And Abram, welcome back to the program. Hi there. Thank you for having me. So it might seem strange to think about investing in water when you consider how relatively cheap it can be in the West. How cheap can it get? Uh, Water in the West has always been virtually free. I mean, we basically pay for the cost of the infrastructure or a slice of the cost of the infrastructure to deliver it. So a typical municipal uh, water cost might be between a dollar or three dollars for a thousand gallons of water. Farms, where most of that water is used, agriculture, pay just a few pennies for a thousand gallons of water. Sounds good to me as a consumer. Why, why should that uh, be of some concern? Well, two reasons. One, the, the cost of the infrastructure that delivers that water is enormous. Uh, looking in particular at the Colorado River, uh, hundreds of dams, some of the biggest in the country, uh, the nation's two largest reservoirs, uh, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, all of that infrastructure cost uh, in excess of $100 billion, and that's federal tax dollars that went to pay for that. And so there's, uh, there is a real cost to that water that, that isn't being repaid. It's a, it's a form of subsidy. Um, but the other reason, and, and what uh, many investors and, and some officials are looking at now, is simply uh, the, the fact that water is a, is a scarce resource. It's in very high demand. Uh, it's ex- it's essential and extremely valuable, and there's no other um, scarce and needed resource uh, which is essentially given away for free. And so they see opportunity when they look at drought in the West, when they look at the booming population in this region. So one of the men who smells opportunity is your main character, Disc Dean Jr. He co-founded a hedge fund called Water Asset Management. In his mind... Water allocation should be based on capitalistic principles. How does he imagine a market for water rights would work? Well, so uh, Disc Dean started a company that uh, is is premised on investing in various types of water. So some of its uh, infrastructure, some of its pipelines, and some of it's going out to farms, for example, and buying actual water rights themselves. Um, he's looking at Colorado as one example where there is a an existing water trading market where he sees a lot of opportunity. And he also looks at um, countries like Australia, which have implemented a water market, which is essentially a cap-and-trade system. So water rights have long been defined and, uh, you know, and doled out on a first-come, first-served basis according to Colorado state law and other states' laws. And uh, a water right system would cap those uh, those amounts of rights at a you know at a uh, at some fixed amount so that the value of of the water can fluctuate and then simply allow them to be moved from one owner to another a little bit more freely than they can now. Uh, right now, laws around water use, water rights, and beneficial use kind of. Um, uh, at least make it difficult to move move water from one farm to one city or between farms, between counties, things like that. Uh, Disc Dean sees an opportunity for scarcity to increase the value of that water 
and its uh, regulations that might allow it to be more freely moved to increase the transaction uh, opportunity and basically start to trade it like any other asset. Colorado is developing its first-ever statewide water plan, and the whole question of that flexibility has certainly been discussed in its shaping. But these water rights, many of them that belong to farmers, go way, way back. So it's no small task to create the kind of market that these hedge fund managers uh, uh, might be giddy about. No, not at all. And, and it, and it kind of goes to some of the fundamentals of, you know, the water dynamic in the first place, which is, you know, as you said, the, the farms and agricultural uses have had their water rights for a very long time. Uh, cities, urban areas on, on the front range of Colorado, for example, have grown in that time and, and don't have access to as much water. And, and one of the main dynamics across the West is that tension is cities wanting more water, farmers wanting to hold their water or having more to give. Um, the opportunity that markets present uh, potentially is for farmers to be compensated for that water. So, um, you know, it's been a, the perennial struggle in Colorado for, uh, you know, for cities to figure out how to get that water, whether they, uh, you know, uh, whether there's more trans-mountain diversions or whether it's, uh, you know, seized through eminent domain and so forth. And so a market at least allows the opportunity for the agricultural interest to be compensated, uh, to permanently sell or temporarily lease, uh, and at least make some money from, uh, you know, transitioning this, this property, what they see as a property. And that distinction between whether a farmer permanently or temporarily sells is an important one, because you talk about agricultural communities that have essentially dried up. We'll get to that in just a bit. But um, lest this just seem like a story that paints hedge fund managers as purely interested in profit, uh, many of them also see a potential for water savings. That is, if it becomes more precious, uh, users of it of all varieties will value it more. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Dis Dean and the other investors I talked to describe um, really like a synergistic opportunity. So obviously, they're looking for their own personal profits. But um, the basic sort of capitalistic philosophy that they see applying and working in the water realm is that, you know, when something's uh, free or so incredibly cheap as water has been, there's really not a lot of incentive to save it. Um, in infrastructure improvements, conservation efforts, and so forth, they're, they're always viewed through the lens of their cost. And if they cost a lot of money, they typically don't happen. The politics are difficult to move forward and so forth. When you attach a cost to something like water and you let its value increase and you give it a value so that it can be traded and it's basically worth the same to you and me as cash in our wallets, then the whole incentivization around uh, saving it, conserving it, uh, making smart decisions about how you use it, changes. So the idea is that, for one, conservation becomes very cost-effective, because if you save a 1,000 gallons of water, you save, you know, $1,000 or whatever the equivalent amount that that water is suddenly worth. Um, that money can then be used to improve infrastructure, to line ditches so that they don't leak in wastewater, uh, for example, uh, and lots of other and lots of other ways you can see from there. Uh, basically, as soon as there's a consequence, uh, a losing money kind of consequence to wasting water, it won't be wasted as much. This is some of what happened in Australia, as you mentioned. But of course, uh, this raises the question of whether uh, people want a market for a resource like water. Would they want one for air? What would this mean for those living in poverty? We'll tackle those questions after a break. We're speaking with Abram Lustgarten of ProPublica. He asks, can Wall Street solve the water crisis in the West? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's rejoin our conversation with ProPublica's Abram Lustgarten. He asks in a new piece, can Wall Street solve the water crisis in the West? The piece also appears in The Atlantic. Abram, this whole question of uh, turning water into more of a pure commodity raises the question of what it means for the poor. Um, there's been some thought given to this, and and how do hedge fund managers, the likes of uh, Dean, uh, Mr. Dean, Disc, uh, Dean Jr., whom you profile, uh, have given some thought to? Yeah, well, basically... Um he and few other people, uh, uh, no, one, no one's really calling for unfettered markets, for a completely free market for water. They, they, the phrase sideboards gets used with me a lot. Uh, so some sort of regulatory structure that protects the public interest but can allow enough of a free market structure for this trading to take place. Um, and that might mean in the short term that it's on a local watershed basis uh, where water isn't uh, freely traded across straight line, state lines. It might mean that there are guaranteed uh, minimum amounts always made available to municipalities, uh, to, uh, you know, to individual um, people who don't necessarily have water rights but are served through their local towns and, and cities. Um, you know, some, some sort of, there is an agreement in the belief that there should be a basic right to a basic supply of water in the United States for a very affordable or minimal cost, as there is now. Uh, what they want to do is begin to, you know, price and, uh, you know, and charge for the privilege of, uh, you know, what a lot of people say is overusing that water, whether it's watering golf courses, filling swimming pools, um, irrigating, you know, large uh, amounts of, of farm acres and, and so forth. Those are, those are not uh, basic water uses. To the use of water on farms and, and the question of whether a market like this could jeopardize the food supply in some respect. Well, there's... Um, we looked closely at uh, at one part of, of Colorado, just south of Colorado Springs, um, Crowley County, uh, and it's an interesting example because Crowley County actually started selling its its water rights uh, decades ago, so it's had time to to uh, to to mature as an example. And what what happened in Crowley County is, you know, on an individual basis, farmers saw an opportunity to sell their rights to their local canal uh, water supply to the cities of Aurora and Colorado Springs. Um, and and it uh, it made sense to them uh, individually. They were in debt. Farming was difficult. Uh, it's a it's a tough economic pursuit. But collectively, the those sales reached sort of a critical mass, and they began to kind of take out the underpinnings of the community. So there wasn't enough farming happening to support the local tractor dealership, the local seed supply, uh, and that you know that trickled down to. Um, you know, the economy for the grocery stores and the car dealerships and so forth. Mm-hmm. And today, Crowley County is is essentially uh, the towns that are there are a shadow of uh, what they used to be. Um, there was a canning factory that closed. There was a sugar factory that closed. The railroad no longer goes there. Um, much of the downtown sections of small towns I went to, like Ordway, Colorado, are, are boarded up and, and shut down. And the people there essentially attribute the, the decline, though there's, there's uh, surely many reasons, but they really point to the decision to sell their water, and they regret selling their water. Uh, and so that's become kind of a, a model case. And there are other examples like this throughout uh, Arizona uh, and other places that I, that I did some reporting. But they, they uh, look at this as sort of the cautionary tale about, you know, what happens if, if markets, uh, you know, permanently transfer water from farms to cities? Uh, what does it do to these communities? And does it, can it, 
add up to a, uh, an impact that's significant enough to affect the United States' ability to, pr- to produce the amount of food that, uh, that it needs to produce. And what's, what is the answer? Well, the answer seems to be that there's, there's no real hard numbers on this. The, the, uh, the consensus view that I arrived at, um, grudgingly on the part of farmers and, and a little more aggressively on the part of academics, is that there is some, some wiggle room, that, um, that because the amount of farmland in Colorado and in the United States uh, and the amount of water that it uses, which is just hugely disproportionate, about 80% of all of the water in the Colorado River Basin is used in agriculture, there's an opportunity for a small reduction in agricultural water usage to translate to a very big increase in the amount of water available for urban and other industrial uses. Um, so the idea is that without decimating farming, without really cutting the legs out from under it, uh, you can either increase the efficiency of irrigation techniques and so forth, or cut back a small amount of the acreage of farming and find the additional water supply that you need at least for, uh, you know, for the future foreseeable supplies, uh, you know, of, of the growing Western cities. And so somewhere in so there... Some, so there's a dent, I suppose, that, that could be made, you're saying, in agriculture that would pay off in terms of conservation without necessarily uh, affecting the food supply. You can read more about that uh, in ProPublica and The Atlantic. Abram Lustgarten spoke with us about his recent piece asking, can Wall Street solve the water crisis in the West? Still to come, hip-hop choreographer Rennie Harris. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Violence and abuse are recurring themes in the life of Lorenzo Harris. And Rennie, as he's known, reflects on those experiences through dance, The choreographer is widely considered a pioneer in the hip-hop genre, and he's been praised for his ability to fuse street dance, theatrics, and storytelling. Harris is artist-in-residence at CU Boulder's Department of Theater and Dance. His Denver company, Grassroots Project, performs his works this weekend. The show is called Beautiful Human Lies. And, Rennie, welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going, um... Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going well. I'm pleased to have you on the show. So Beautiful Human Lies is inspired by your experiences growing up in a predominantly black community in North Philadelphia. You say it is not a happy show. Uh, what kinds of experiences does it reflect? Well, um, it's sort of based on my life uh, with my mom and my and my siblings and uh, the abuse um, that I watched my mother go through and, you know, family members go through. What was the nature of that abuse, if you'd care to reflect on it? Uh, there was, um, you know, spousal abuse, uh, molestation, rape, things of that nature. Huh. Is it hard to go back to that um, when putting together a piece of dance? No, I think that you know, to me, the best, the best work or the best, um, uh, you know, pr- theater pre- presentations are based. Are ones that are uh, personal, and so um, it, it makes it sort of uh, therapeutic in a way, and also it touches you know a few people in the audience. Hmm. How would you describe your childhood in Philly? Was it a good one? Was it uh, a purely traumatic one? No, there was a moment where it was it, you know I felt like I was a kid, you know, when, when thinking about it. But most of it, the majority of it, was traumatic. Yeah. You say that you didn't choose dance, that it sort of chose you. How so? Somebody paid me. 
<laughs> and I started dancing. <laughs> Money is a good reason to start into something. How, what did that look especially, like? Especially in the hood, economics. That's, you know, that's what happens. Tell us the story yeah. of, of how you were approached. Uh, someone said, hey, um, I want to, um, you want you guys to dance at the, the church function. It was like $15. And we're like, all right, great. You know, and, you know, we thought we were actually getting over on them by, um, you know, charging them $15, you know. It was like, if they'd asked, we'd have did it for free. And, of course, we had to spit uh, 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 split $15 four ways. <laughs> so, And had you been dancing before that, um, maybe street dancing? No, I mean, I mean, yes. I mean, by way of, like, in the community, when we think about street dance, we're really saying the community dance, the dance that comes out of the community. And so, of course, that's part of my... Um, cultural background is, you know, music is always played in the home. Dance is always a part of everything that you do. It's not something that's um, looked at as an extracurricular activity. What kind of dance would take place in your home then? The social and party dances that were popular within the community that, you know, I came from. Was that a highlight of your childhood? Was, Was that something that stood out that was positive? Well, no, it was a lot of I wouldn't say it was a highlight, but because that was just regular. It wasn't, you know, anything, you know, outside of normal for us. Um, I think just, you know, a moment where, you know, just being a kid and having, um, uh, you know, friends to hang out with that, you know, we were pretty much positive. We didn't, you know, get into a lot of trouble um, within in this particular era, uh, time of my life. And that was that whole experience of being able to play sports in the street and, you know, just hang out with your friends and be a kid um, was really positive. What led you to choreography and, and eventually bringing hip hop to a theater setting? Well, in uh, as a street dancer or once you kind of define yourself as such, you're really a choreographer when you start off. That's the first thing you learn. You learn how to create your own movement so, so that when you're dancing, you're able to sort of pull from this vocabulary that you've created. And so you learn how to be a choreographer. You, really, choreography is the first thing you learn as a street dancer. And then later we figure out how to move as a unit. You know, And generally, even when we move as a unit, we're still individualized. We still have our own character, so we're not... Um, you know, uh, succinct, so to speak, and and perfect, and everybody's arm at one, and you know, at the same height. Um, hip hop is designed to recognize um, individuality. So the three laws of hip hop is individuality, innovation, and creativity. Sounds like the rules of jazz too. Very much so. And when you think about, I often say that jazz, um, hip hop parallels the same path as jazz right now, and we're in a major transition. Your movement is a blend of several forms of urban dance, including <coughs> hip-hop, breaking, locking and popping, traditional African dance. And you use music ranging from hip-hop to house, gospel, as well as spoken word. So let's take a break now and return to our conversation in just a bit with hip-hop choreographer Lorenzo Rennie Harris. He's artist-in-residence at CU Boulder's Department of Theater and Dance, and he'll present an evening of his work this weekend. When we come back, how he was inspired by West Side Story. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Yeah, yeah. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And let's return to our conversation with hip-hop choreographer Lorenzo Rennie Harris. He's artist-in-residence at CU Boulder's Department of Theater and Dance. His show this weekend is called Beautiful Human Lies. It features dancers from his Denver-based company, Grassroots Project. Uh, Rennie, I'd like to hear more about your first large-scale work, Rome and Jewels. It has won multiple awards, and it's the longest touring hip-hop dance theater work in American history. I understand you were inspired by the 1961 musical West Side Story. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, when I when I first saw the movie, of course, sometime later when I was younger, I was kind of upset that there weren't any street dancers in it. And so... Uh, I kind of kept that in the back of my head and started to think, like, you know, if ever if I ever had the chance, I would, you know, create something um, based on it. And so it didn't feel authentic enough to you? Well, no. I was, you know, I guess, you know, the the... I guess the, the the Puerto Ricans in the movie were white with makeup on, and yeah. so they kind of felt like, oh, okay. And the dance was unfamiliar to me because I, I wasn't aware of um, that type of jazz. Uh, I, w- I was aware of street jazz prior to that, to the to Broadway jazz, but um, so it felt felt a little bit, you know, as, as we like to say, Hollywoodish. Yeah, were you inspired by West Side Story because it was so good or so bad in your in your eyes at that time? Oh, no, I, I loved the story and still had the story of the street, so to speak. And I was really, you know, one of my favorite mo- um, movies um, still, um, just in speci- uh, uh, in regard to the dance itself. Yeah. Um, and I still and I like the dance, too. I just thought, like, mm, I wonder if they had, like, you know, some some real salsa dancers or some real, you know, street dancers in this movie. It had, you know, would have would it have gone even been just more of a classic a classic or more authentic you've made many works for your company Rennie Harris Pure Movement um one of the first mm-hmm. and longest running hip hop performance troupes and you've created pieces for companies like Cleo Parker Robinson Dance in Denver Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater in New York how does choreographing for dancers trained in you know ballet jazz modern differ from working with uh, dancers, hip hop dancers, purely hip hop dancers, for instance. Well, I mean, one, uh, you know, many of those dancers um, still go to the club and they still they still get down with party social dances. Uh, the The problem becomes um, they've learned a new language in their bodies, and so I basically just sort of have to figure out how to get them back in touch with the the other language that you know they grew up with. And so um, I kind of move from through that space first. And then once we connect and we sort of like move through um, a series of vocabulary and then I sort of um, uh, add narrative and and things of that nature. But it is definitely different. The, the, the language changes a little bit. And, and what I put set on them, you know, I come from a street dance background, so I may give them hip hop. I may give them house. I may give them a different a few different styles of street dance, but then what happens is they reinterpret that and then that becomes something different, you know, although we can see this, the, some of the lineage in street dance that's, you know, in the chore- choreographically, it's still the, the texture is slightly different. And so that's them becoming bilingual, talking to their, like, mm. talking to their audience as well as uh, my audience as well, hopefully. Right. It's not just bilingualism though. It's, it's switching between languages and blending them at the same time. Um, 
I don't know, something like Spanglish, you know, the blending of Spanish and English or something. Um, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I think I, I think you're I think you're correct, but I think but the hope is for them to become bilingual. In the beginning, maybe it is Spanglish, but then you know after my learning my style over some years or doing the work over some years, they actually become bilingual. Uh, we have just a few seconds, um, so I want to ask what you hope to achieve with uh, a foundation that I understand you are building for hip hop dance at CU Boulder. Well, you know, I want right now the way, you know, I feel like uh, what people understand as hip hop dance or street dance has sort of been watered down and and it's actually not the truth about it. And what they see on television and film is a different is an interpretation of what they think it is. And um, like every dance culture, every dance style, there, there's a history. And so the history for street dance isn't being told. So if I'm if I have to know about um uh, uh, Isadora Duncan's, Duncan history, then someone should know about Boogaloo Sam and Don Campbellock's history. Hip-hop choreographer Lorenzo Rennie Harris. The show Beautiful Human Lies is this weekend on the CU campus at the university's Irie Theater. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>